0: Host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia Pacific region. On June 16th, 2020, Indian and Chinese forces clashed high in the Himalayan mountains in Aksai Chin. Beijing and New Delhi both claim control over this remote region in a territorial dispute dating back decades. Sources differ on how many soldiers died in the skirmish, fought with fists and clubs rather than guns, with the potential death toll ranging into the dozens. Looking back two years later, the skirmish at Galwan marked a clear turning point in relations between these two Asian countries, with India now taking a much harsher line towards China joining the U.S., Australia, and Japan in the so-called Quad Alliance, banning Chinese-affiliated apps like Alibaba and TikTok. Why has the border between China and India been disputed for so long? And what made the bloody clash at Galwan a watershed for New Delhi's view of China? Manoj Joshi, in his book for Hearst earlier this year, Understanding the India-China Border, the Enduring Threat of War in High Himalaya, explains where this dispute came from, how it sometimes led to war, and the many failed attempts to find a negotiated solution. Manoj Joshi is a distinguished fellow at the Observer Research Foundation. He has been a journalist specializing on national and international politics and is a commentator and columnist on these issues. As a reporter, he has written extensively on issues relating to Siachen, Pakistan, China, Sri Lanka, and terrorism in Kashmir and Punjab. Today, Manoj and I talk about the border dispute, where it came from, and why both countries have been unable to reach a negotiated solution. So, Manoj, thank you. So much for joining me today on the Asian Review of Books podcast. I want to start with kind of the incident that that brought the India-China border into the news, at least in recent years, which was the skirmish at Galwan. And maybe I just want to ask, kind of, what actually happened there, to the best of our knowledge.
1: Well, uh, you know, in uh, May, uh, April, May, twenty twenty. The Chinese suddenly occupied certain, what what are called unheld areas, meaning there's a line of actual control which is 4,000 kilometers long and it can't be policed. You can't police every inch of it, meaning you patrol there and you come back. There are certain areas where there is an overlap of claims. Uh, I say that the borders at The the far end of the room, the Chinese say that the border is at the near end of the room. So in between, in the room, both sides patrol. But the peculiarity about Galwan is that there was no doubt about where the line of actual control lay. And yet the Chinese, amongst the five places they uh, intruded into, uh, Galwan was one of them. and. Surprisingly enough, on sixth uh, of June, there was actually high-level talks, you know, at the level of lieutenant generals, uh, near the Pangong Lake, and they a withdrawal was agreed on. Both sides agreed, and uh, then when the Indian team went to the Chinese, where the Chinese had uh, occupied in in uh, the 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 territory in Galwan uh, when it went there it found that uh, the Chinese were still there and they had a post and uh, uh, they hadn't pulled back well actually what happened was initially they pulled back but when the, the reports came that they had got, come back to that area so this Colonel um, mm-hmm. uh, Babu his name was Babu uh, Santosh Babu he and his team landed up there to talk to the Chinese And while that conversation was going on a fracas developed now this is a high altitude area with a fast-flowing very cold stream meaning even in summer uh, it's very very cold and uh, so the skirmish went on from at least I should say sundown up to midnight so both sides reinforced their uh, positions but and strangely enough this was using fists and stones and clubs though from whatever evidence i have the indian side at least had guns but the guns were not used so but when the dust cleared uh, we found that uh, 20 indians had died including colonel babu and uh, some people say that that at least 17 of them died because of hypothermia meaning the cold meaning they were injured but then they didn't get treatment and they died in the case of the Chinese, almost six months later, they acknowledged that four people had died. Many people speculate that more may have been killed. And the Chinese also took a number of prisoners. Uh, they released them three days later. And then the senior officers came, and I think they uh, everything sort of calmed down uh, out there. And uh, in July, at the end of July, both sides agreed to separate their forces by one and a half kilometers each. And that's the position uh, as it exists till, no, uh, till now. So I'd like to
0: take a big step back and, you know, ask what makes this part of the world, what makes this border, you know, quote unquote, important? You know, why does, what makes it important for India and what makes it important for China? You know, th- th- these are remote areas of the Himalayas. They're very high up. Um, so why do, in theory, why, why do both governments care about this region?
1: Well, uh, the, for the Chinese, actually, uh, for, the Indi- for the Indians, it is more a question of, uh, you know, uh, sovereign territory and things like that. For the Chinese, there is a strategic reason. They have a highway going from uh, Xinjiang to Tibet, which goes through this region, the place called Aksai Chin, which is uh, to the east of where this incident occurred. And the Chinese always obsess that India can use, because the terrain is such, uh, north of that, the terrain is such, it's pretty flat and you can even use tanks there. The Chinese constantly worry that Indian would interdict their highway. So they keep, they've kept on pushing the border westwards, you see, uh, basically to provide security for their key highway. As far as the Indians are concerned, the way they look at it is that this is very important for the defense of their main town in Ladakh, which is called Leh, as well as for another reason that if you go beyond that, you come to what is called the Siachen Glacier, where India and China, India and Pakistan have been fighting for years and years. And what the Indians worry is that if the Chinese keep on pushing westwards, they will link up with the Pakistanis, and so the huge uh, chunk of Northern territory will be lost and uh, India's Ladakh uh, Union territory will be endangered. So, you know, why is this border
0: contested at all? Like, kind of what's the original historical disagreement um, that, that leads this border to be disputed, you know?
1: Well, you see, when uh, India became free in 1947 uh, the maps of India actually showed didn't show any border meaning it showed blank it showed it was just marked by a color flat wash you know but there was no line so it is neither demarcated nor delineated insofar as China is concerned you see uh, the Chinese occupied Tibet in 1951 prior to that there was no real Chinese control of the border, so India and Tibet, because uh, uh, had a kind of a relationship where there was, you know, customary. Um, uh, both sides uh, had some notion of the border, but there was no not, no hard and fast kind of uh, rule. So there were there were specific villages and towns where you identified where the Tibetan officials would operate from, and there were places where Indians would operate from, but there was no kind of Fixed thing that from that mountain to that mountain is mine and the other side is yours but when the chinese came they came with the idea of uh, setting up a national sovereign people's republic and so did india so this modern concept of the border earlier border was kind of a zone in the in the in the old days uh, borders were zones where you went from one zone to the other and where exactly you cross the border was not very clear So, these two republics kind of tried, uh, uh, sort of uh, wanted their sovereign uh, borders demarcated. The problem was that Indians handled it badly. Uh, Right from the outset, the Indians said that there's a customary and traditional border, and we know where it is, so there's no need to negotiate. And the Chinese uh, tried to, because the Chinese were occupying what India said was its territory. Uh, the Chinese, uh, this area of Aksai Chin, which, where all these things have been happening, is a very uh, remote area. It's Even for a mountain area, it was extraordinarily remote. And there's nothing there. There are no resources there. Uh, there's not even pasturages, you know. And it was a kind of a huge no-man's land. But as I explained to you, the Chinese uh, needed it from the strategic point of view. So they intruded into, into it. So essentially, if you want to put it another way, they occupied the no man's land. But India also had claims on that no man's land, you see. And so that is where the kind of dispute began to arise because they were unable to negotiate a, a border. Because normally what you would do is the two sides would sit together, set up survey teams and get their maps and all that out and then negotiate, meaning give and take. And delineate a border, first on maps, then put it down on the ground and maybe put boundary markers and things like that. But none of that happened. At the the political negotiation phase itself, things collapsed. Nehru, Prime Minister Nehru refused to accept that there was any dispute. Uh, Prime Minister Zhao Enlai of China came to India in 1960, April of 1960, hoping to sell a compromise solution uh, but he was uh, um, the Indian side rejected it. So that is uh, how that dispute uh, kind of went haywire. And then in 1962 there was a war, which further poisoned the relationship. So the border has remained uh, disputed since. Since then it is marked by a line of actual control, which means nothing. Meaning it's, it's a, a line of actual control means you are where you are, I am where I am. Uh, but there is no common line of actual control there is not there is no common map between the india and china so there are large areas of overlap there are 17 18 places where even the line of actual control overlaps leave alone the uh, larger issue of the dispute of the border, border.
0: And, and quickly just to kind of cuz cuz there's the line of actual control between india and china and then there's the line of control between india and pakistan in and, i mean is, is that is that I guess is the line of control between India and Pakistan. Is that even more formal than the line of actual yeah. control between India and China?
1: Absolutely. Meaning uh, the, uh, the line of control with uh, Pakistan is in Kashmir. Okay, and this was essentially the ceasefire line in nineteen forty nine, and uh, then it became the line of control uh, in nineteen seventy two, after the Bangladesh war. Now the point is, this line was meticulously surveyed by surveyors of both sides. They surveyed it, prepared a mosaic of maps. Both sides signed them. Each point, each river, each nala, uh, you know, stream, etc., is identified. Uh, so the line of control uh, is identified uh, in a modern cartographical um, uh, process. Um, that's the difference. Whereas the line of actual control in many ways, is notional, meaning it's where you say it is. So, I mean,
0: obviously the the nadir of this is the 1962 war. But it seems like the extent to which um, India and China are willing to talk about the border, that changes in the decades since. Um, The extent to which either country cares about this border dispute changes in the decades since. Um, i mean how how has each country's position on the border changed since 1962 it seems like at times they're more willing to talk about it then at other times they backtrack on what they perhaps agreed to do earlier how, how is that kind of how have these discussions changed since 62
1: see from 62 till 1980 there was no talk b- between them in 1980 they began to kind of talk they had several rounds of talks uh, between each other in 1987 there was another crisis when uh, the the in in the east this time uh, and near the town uh, north of the town of tawang and where both sides mobilized their armies right across the border now this was the time if you recollect chinese were trying to calm down things they were trying to start there Um, uh, liberalization and and didn't want to get involved in crises so by 1993 uh, the two sides after talks uh, agreed to uh, kind of work out a mechanism uh, uh, to maintain peace and tranquility on the border the important part of that was that India for the first time recognized the concept of the line of actual control Till then, India had not recognized that concept. India had been absolutely... see And uh, just um, a little bit of... uh, In the 1980s, the Chinese once again proposed uh, a swap. In 1960, when Zhao Enlai had come to Delhi, he had said, look, why don't we swap? We will concede your Eastern claims. You concede our Western claims. And as I said, Indians rejected it. Now, in 1980s, late 1970s, Deng Xiaoping again raised this. Early 80s, again, the Chinese proposed it, and again, the Indians rejected it. And in 1985, the Chinese positions hardened. I think they realized that, look, in the West, we already have what we need. So why do we give any concessions to the Indians in the East? So they started saying that, uh, earlier they used to they were ready to agree with the eastern border as it existed now they started saying that actually a bigger dispute lies here there's a bigger dispute in the east than in the west and as, as i told you in the west they were already occupying what they needed to occupy so so that that is the way that dispute uh, twisted out there but then as i said the 93 agreement uh, was there to maintain peace and tranquility and a critical part of the agreement the crucial part the agreement revolved around uh, determining where the line of actual control lay because if you're going to maintain peace and tranquility along the line of actual control you should know where it is it should be uh, agreeable to both sides now strangely enough in all these years we have not even been able to achieve that we have not been able to fulfill that agreement where all the places as i noted told you 17 18 places where there are overlapping claims we could have sat down with surveyors and said okay let's let's determine what what is where uh, here and let's get a common line of actual control because that would make it beyond uh, these kind of incursions and and things like that but the chinese uh, did not bite that they 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 have refused uh, to do that y-
0: you know, you you mentioned in your answer kind of the this this land swap proposal, you know that um, that that basically said, recognize China's claims in the West, recognize India's claims in the east and leave it at that. Um, and I know that that's been a solution, quote unquote, that's been proposed several times throughout the decade since, um, I think mostly by China. Um, but 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 what stopped that what what stops just formalizing the status quo? Um, from becoming the solution to this to this conflict
1: you know that's uh, not easy to determine because in 2005 we actually signed an agreement on the political parameters and agreed guidelines of a border settlement and if you read that 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 particular agreement it would seem because it said that when determining the border both sides will take into account each other's strategic concerns. Now, as I told you that the strategic concern really pertained to Oxygen Chin for China. And another clause of the agreement says that in arriving at a border border settlement, we will take into account the uh, settled populations. Now, that would be the East. In the East, India has settled populations. There are no settled populations in the West. So to me, the agreement sounded as though they were formalizing the swap. But then the Chinese walked back on that as well. And I think that the Chinese, uh, by 2008, 2009, because of the global uh, financial crisis and because of China's phenomenal growth, uh, whereas in 1990, India and China were roughly equal in terms of GDP, by 2010, China was somewhere else and India had been left far behind. And 1990, China was ready to deal with India as an equal, but in 2010 it began to feel why should we deal with this guys equals, you know, and I think uh, they have found it convenient not to settle the border so that they can keep India off balance.
0: So I want to ask a question about about you. I mean, you you've worked as a journalist um, throughout a lot of this period, and you've had the Maybe good fortune. Maybe you can call it that um, to actually meet, interview, work with a lot of the key players, at least in India, but I think also in China throughout this, throughout these negotiations, throughout these disputes. Um, in your mind, kind of, who were some of the kind of key individual players in this, and kind of what was your impression of how they were thinking about China and this border dispute?
1: Well, you know, uh, in the first phase. Uh... Prime Minister Nehru himself, meaning it was between him and Prime Minister Zhou Lai. The dispute played out in their, in their uh, correspondence. Uh, subsequently, officials came into the picture. Uh, from the Indian side, it was a gentleman called uh, Parthasarthi, you know, uh, G. Parthasarthi. He was a uh, uh, kind of a very influential figure in the government and also advised the government on foreign policy. And Parthasarathy was an old Nehru loyalist. So in the 80s, when the Chinese came up with a compromise proposal, Parsasarthi turned it down. He didn't agree with it. And of course, subsequently, the thing became more formalized as, as talks between officials of the two sides, which were kind of, you know uh in in the 1980s there was not much to go by then as i said the 87 crisis took place and in 1988 for the first time uh after the uh, for the first time an indian prime minister visited china <coughs> that was in 1988 rajiv gandhi went to china and subsequent to that that border peace and tranquility agreement was signed now all this uh so so yes politically uh, rajiv gandhi Uh, took the bit between his teeth and decided to visit China. And basically, as I said, the messaging was similar, meaning he met Deng Xiaoping, and Deng Xiaoping made that famous statement that, you know, uh, we cannot have an Asian century uh, unless India and China um, uh, have friendship between them. And so this was the mood where both countries were trying to create, uh, liberalize, work with their economies they were looking for some peaceful ways so basically they decided on the 93 agreement that at least there should be some form of peace and tranquility uh, along the um, uh, lac and after that of course uh, they have been uh, again as i said most of it had been uh, subsequently uh, uh, arisen from talks between officials but then in 2002 prime minister vajpai went to china and he proposed to them, that why don't we settle this, leave a, you know, forget all old maps and old claims and things like that, let's arrive at a political settlement. So for that settlement, uh, two very senior officers, meaning Prime Minister's own secretary, uh, political secretary, Mr. Pradesh Mishra from the Indian side, and the Chinese very senior office, uh, officer, Dai Bingo, Uh, They became special representatives. And so this thing now is managed by special representatives. But uh, so uh, Rajesh Mishra himself told me after retirement that they had hoped to actually settle everything within two or three years. But that didn't happen because Vajpayee's government lost power in 2004. And the special representative talks have been continuing. Now, according to uh, my friend Shivshankar Menon, who was also a... A, a, a special representative uh, the, the 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 officials have done their job they've worked out everything basically a framework means the final uh, framework can only be done if there is political agreement if the politicians agree you know and if the politicians agree things can quickly fall in place but I don't think uh, the politicians are ready for that China has its own calculations India has its own, and so we've had no political meeting of, um, uh, uh, of uh, views as far as the border settlement is concerned.
0: So I want to return to the return to the present day, as it were. You know, kind of looking back since Galwan. To me, the the skirmish at Galwan appears to me to have been a real turning point in in India-China relations, I think especially in India, where um, that seems to have sparked a much greater, um, you could say, attention, campaign, controls um, on 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 Chinese pres- on China's presence in India. Um, I remember the government banned a lot of Chinese apps like TikTok, also even just Chinese affiliated apps from, you know, come from companies that had Chinese investment, like I think, um, like apps from C. there's obviously a, 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 much greater attention paid now to, um, accusations of tax evasion against Chinese phone manufacturers. Um, there was, I think just last week, there was, it was the last week. Well, it just, I think just over the weekend from when we were recording this, this conversation um there was a story about uh them raiding paytm and a few other sorry not rating but investigating with indian payment processes for regarding a chinese loan app that was being accused of um fleecing its customers um so i guess so, so it really seems to have been been a been a sharp turn in india's attitude towards china and towards china's presence in india Um, I guess, what was it about Galwan that maybe helped to spark the shift? And then where do you see kind of India's China policy going from here?
1: Well, you see, the reason why Galwan was a shift, I explained to you that from 1993, we started creating a confidence building measures regime. So we had agreement after agreement. We have 93 agreement. We have a 96 agreement. The ninety-three and ninety-six agreements even uh, spoke of thinning forces, thinning down forces in the line uh, around uh, along the line of actual control, removing certain kinds of heavy weaponry, etc. So it is pretty detailed. Then, as I um, uh, explained to you, we were trying to work out a common line of actual control as per those agreements, but by 2001 and 2002 it was clear that the chinese were uh, that was unacceptable to china they didn't want to fix the line of actual control in 2002 itself the special representatives were appointed you know for the process then 2005 we had uh, this uh, political parameters agreed guidelines of a border settlement which looked like you know things were going right and simultaneously we also had military cbms the military to military cbms how will the militaries behave when they meet each other in the border you know and it is a fairly detailed process and amongst them was the clause that you, uh, they will not use uh, arms and that is what happened in galwan the indians didn't use their uh, weapons now so this confidence building measures regime 2012 we had another one border defense cooperation agreement So the way the Indians saw it is that in Galwan, this entire confidence-building regime concept went for a toss. Because the Chinese, uh, by massing troops without informing India, by occupying, uh, blockading, uh, establishing blockades uh, against India in five different places in in Ladakh, uh, the Chinese had essentially destroyed the confidence-building measures uh, regime. And the clash itself because as it is famously said, there's not a single bullet had been fired since 1975. And in Galwan, suddenly 20, uh, 24, meaning if you count the Chinese claim of four, uh, 24 people died, hundreds were injured. There was an actual clash. See? So the, the, the point was the destruction of that, that um, confidence-building measures regime uh, took place because of, of Galwan. And so it is a turning point. Uh, So what you've lost really is trust because you can have that kind of a confidence-building regime if you trust each other. Trust was building up. And it's remarkable because in in 2018, after the crisis, there was a small crisis in Doklam, in in Bhutan, India and China were involved. Uh, After that crisis, we began the process of uh, informal summits Meaning Prime Minister Modi, General Secretary and President Xi Jinping had an informal summit in Wuhan where they talked without agendas for two days uh, in 2018. And in 2019, October, there was another informal summit in Chennai in India. So when you look at it, it seemed that everything was stabilizing by the end of 2019. And then suddenly in 2020, we had that this Chinese action where they massed their armies. Where they occupy uh, places along the line of actual control, block Indian patrolling. Uh, so, 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 what I'm trying to get at is that Galwan, in that sense, uh, the key point is the loss of trust. And now the Indians are actually allowed to, uh, the Indian forces allowed to shoot back for one thing. So, so, the, the it's this lack of trust which has created this situation, and India is very clear. Uh, You see, unless and until there's a status quo ante, you must go back to April of 2020 in terms of where your troops are located. uh, We can't even begin to move forward. But I think, um, uh, to be frank, I don't think there's any going back. Uh, You have to keep on going forward as far as this is concerned. So there is an element of distrust. I think both sides will have to now think how to maintain peace and tranquility uh, along the border. Uh, That is the big issue uh, that confronts them because both sides are also building up. The Chinese are building up for uh, their Tibetan uh, defenses and the Indians are building up their defenses. uh, So the thing has become more hazardous.
0: So I think with that, that ends our interview with Manoj Joshi, author of Understanding the India-China Border, the Enduring Threat of War in High Himalaya. Manoj, I actually have two final questions for you, which is uh, where can people find your work and uh, what's next for you? What's your next project?
1: Well, uh, people can find my work. I think Amazon has it uh, on them and I've seen uh, they even have uh, electronic version uh, already. Uh, It was published in London in July by Seahurst and uh, it has just come out uh, this month uh, in uh, India, uh, published by HarperCollins. So, so there's an Indian edition published by HarperCollins, and the, I would say the British edition, is really the global edition, uh, which is published by Seahurst, but they're identical in every way, except for a quirky uh, thing in the title, <laughs> where uh, where the 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 British edition, uh, where the uh, the British edition says. The enduring threat of war in high Himalaya but the Indian edition says the enduring threat of war in the High Himalayas so uh, I checked with the Brits they didn't bother to answer so I said oh, how can I challenge them on grammar so I think some problem there <laughs> but but the Indian one has a different title uh, as to where I go from there uh, you know as I said my background is as a journalist I worked Uh, I was covering this Chinese thing right from the 1980s. The second thing that I was covering uh, was terrorism. And I think India doesn't have uh, a comprehensive account of how terrorism affected India and how it dealt with it. So I'm going to work on that now.
0: Well, I look forward to hearing more about it. You can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N I C K R I G O R D O N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. This podcast is on all of your favorite podcast apps Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us continuing to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for interview with Hannah Kirshner, author of Water, Wood, and Wild Things, Learning Craft and Cultivation in a Japanese Mountain Town. But before then, Manoj, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Nicholas, for doing this podcast and putting out the word with regard to my book.